Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly. On this episode, I'm joined by John St. John, founder and owner of Hog Island Boat Works. John shares his fishing journey, and we take a deep dive into all things Hog Island. I think you're really going to like this episode. But before we get to the interview, just a couple of housekeeping items. If you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. It really helps us out. Following up on last week's episode, we've received several listener questions asking about the best way to support the show. In addition to subscribing in the podcatcher of your choice and leaving us a review, you can also support the show by using our affiliate link when you shop on Amazon. It doesn't cost you a thing, and we receive a small commission on all of your purchases. You can also become a Patreon patron and make a single or a recurring donation. Links to both of these options are in the show notes. There wouldn't be a show without listeners like you. We appreciate you more than you know. Now, on to our interview. Well, John, welcome to the Articulate Fly. Thank you very much for having me. Well, I'm really looking forward to our chat this evening, and we have a tradition on the Articulate Fly. We always ask all of our guests to share their earliest fishing memory. Yeah, I think we're going to talk about fishing tonight. That's cool. Yeah, absolutely. They're right on. It was a a small pond named Lucas Pond that my uh, grandmother took me to in southern Arkansas. It had alligators in it. And and so what was that like, you know, fishing when you were a kid and you had to worry to to make sure you didn't uh, accidentally find an alligator? It was awesome. I'd spend my summers down there and uh, had a whole collection of cane poles. We had a special uh, cane pole holder on the side of her car. She might have driven a Buick or something. And uh, uh, she'd park me down there and then go walk and keep an eye on me. But the uh, gators would roar. It was awesome. I was catching a lot of brim. And I was trying to catch catfish on that old uh, uh, chicken blood bait called Charlie Charlie bait that was coagulated chicken blood. But I was catching more brim under, under a bobber with worms. We had a worm farm. super cool and and so so when did you uh get drawn to the dark side of fly fishing (laughs) in high school up in uh tennessee uh seeing people catch brim again on poppers gotcha and where where was that where was that in tennessee Uh, outside of chattanooga around the tennessee river and little little ponds off the tennessee river Got it. And so, you know, you've been fly fishing for a while. And who are some of the folks that uh, mentored you on your fly fishing journey? Man, I got lucky. Uh, Ten days after I got out of high school in 1982, I was in uh, Hoback Junction, Wyoming. And I had a a combo Berkeley spin fly rod because I wanted to be able to do everything. And that did nothing well. And so uh, Jack Dennis's father, Jack Dennis Sr., I think you'd call him, had a little shop on the uh, town square there in Jackson and about a week into it. He hooked me up with a, uh, a castable, functionable uh, uh, Fenwick that I uh, got out in South Park and a little bit of the snake. The snake, I didn't know how to fish very well early, but smaller stuff. So running around there, and then uh, uh, there was a lot of people that fished a lot better than fly fished early than me that, that are still around. But I, I knew nothing about fly fishing compared to guys like uh, uh, Jeff Courier, Scott Sanchez or a guy that we call who's probably the fishiest, one of the fishiest guys we, we ever know. And I don't know where he is. I laugh with Jeff Curry about it all the time. If I see him at a show or something is a uh, Gary Edgemont, Wedgemont, we called him the, uh, the edge. And, uh, those guys fish like crazy. I like to ski and, and worked in hunting camps and, and whitewater. So the fishing was always fun, but those guys definitely had the fever. Yeah, super cool, super cool. And uh, do you have a favorite species to chase on the fly? 
you know, whatever they'll eat right now, living in steamboat, uh, the last, the last month, but it's like you're, it's like whatever you've done last, I guess the last four weeks I've been, uh, four weekends I've been going up North about an hour chasing, uh, uh, cutthroats and brookies and little tiny creeks. And that's really lit me up being able to, uh, walk around in cold water, you know, 8,500, 9,000 feet and catch these little fully developed mature fish that are eight, 10, 12 inches long. And it's all been on dry flies. It's been fun. So that's, that's one of the ones that keep me going right now, thinking about those little creeks for sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I, I, I also heard you have a little bit of a pike addiction. Man, I love some pike. We've chased them a couple of times. I got a good one in the spring walking around what we call Lac Lafarge. We've relocated some pike out of the Yampa into a reclaimed gravel pit, Lac Lafarge or the pike pond and caught a healthy one in there. I hadn't caught any healthy ones yet in the river, but I'll be looking here in another couple of weeks if we get more weather. It's fun. When you see a really big one, it's, it's, it's a, it's a mess. You, you want to catch it. Sometimes it takes a day or two. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you, uh, do you also have the, uh, the carp bug? You know, I haven't as much now. No, I haven't, I haven't been able to dive into that very deep. Not currently, not in the last 10 years. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, so, you know, not all anglers are boaters. How did boating become a part of your outdoor life, John? You know, when I, when I left, uh, when I got out of high school, I drove to Wyoming with a kayak on top and, uh, uh, dove into the whitewater world. I, I was whitewater guiding in the early eighties, mid eighties, and that mutated into fish guiding, uh, in the mid eighties, late, late eighties out of, uh, Hoback down on the snake. So it was, it was a nice way to be able to ride out the snake and as it cleared, you know, mutate into fish guiding. So that kind of led me into it. Still like a lot of white water and still like a lot of multi-day trips. Got it. And so were you, did you have other roles in the outdoor industry kind of between that and when you founded Hog Island? You know, I left, I left guiding and had another life for 10 years in the 90, from 91 to 2001 in the furniture industry. Uh, chasing furniture uh, collections, uh, you know, in the North America and then, uh, beyond. And uh, so I had another life, I guess, back in the getting me back into the outdoor industry started really with uh, I was uh, had a real sweet tooth for duck hunting for a long time and uh, uh, developed a zippered waiter with uh, YKK and some other folks. And uh, it was right about the time that neoprene in the late 90s, 98, 99, neoprene was evolving to a more uh, softer Gore-Tex materials for waders and uh, made some prototypes and didn't chase that one very far, uh, uh, the zippered wader thing, and then developed a grill in the late 90s that I love called the barbecue briefcase that folds flat. I was looking a way to, for a way to dive back into to the passion. I was living out west now in Colorado, and uh, uh, the boat project you know, came down the pike that that took over the barbecue briefcase and dreams of zippered waiters. <laughs> Got it. So it was, it was the early two thousands. You founded hog Island. It is, it is a project. The story I tell is uh, my stepbrother. That's like a brother had called and, and uh, he was in roto molding. He was working for a roto molder that had a number of factories across the South and they were making parts for uh, Marine manufacturers. He was handling the Marine industry. And I had a, uh, 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 passion for the marine industry as well from whitewater and things and we were talking about different roto-molded shapes over the years that we could do together if it was dry boxes or cat catamaran tube type shapes and then his company did a project for disney 
and uh, they used this skin foam skin technology. He sent me a cross section of it and, and said they're curious if, if, if they thought it'd make good material for a drift boat. And uh, it, that's a that's a day that I remember. So they, I, by the end of the day, I had uh, the president of the company on the phone, and I was convinced that that, that would be it. You know, we were going to chase that. I was going to chase that pretty hard. So um, uh, that was it. You know, that, that started it. So they put me in touch with the people that helped them with the Disney project that designed it. And that one of the guys that coincidentally founded was one of the founders of another rotomolded drift or not rotomolded boat company called logic that changed its name to triumph. It was owned by Erwin Jacobs of Genmar, the world's largest boat guy. Erwin's a famous guy in the bass world. It started the, one of the bass tours. And uh, uh, so that guy was great. He, he was able to, uh, explain to me what I needed to know to, to make a drift boat out of plastic. And, uh, off we went. Yeah. Super cool. And to kind of, <laughs> kind of help people know, can you kind of briefly explain what roto molding is and, you know, what that cross section of material looked like? Cause I, in my mind's eye, I think of it as maybe like a cross section of a Yeti cooler. It is, you know, uh, it is, you know, Alvin, the dough, uh, uh, outfitter and guy down in Texas had released a video yesterday that really summed it up that it's a, 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 a Yeti in a, in a boat shape. The difference between us and a Yeti or another rotomolded cooler is that our interior is a polyurethane or excuse me, a polyethylene foam versus a polyurethane foam. The, the cooler folks will squirt in a polyurethane foam and other boat people like Boston Whaler and other companies when they're creating flotation. I'll use a polyurethane foam that expands. It, it has an R value uh, for for uh, uh, insulation, and it also expands. Our our big deal is that we use a polyethylene foam that bonds to our skin. And polyethylene is a, a fancy way for me to say plastic. So our cross section is is like a uh, a Yeti or a rotomolded cooler in that that it's that it's a skin foam skin. And ours is skin foam skin along the sidewalls of our boat, down into the tine and the boat bottom. As our customers know, uh, the, there'll be hollow cavities in our boat in the decks where the foam doesn't completely fill. We we designed the boat so it completely fills on the sidewalls to, to hold our boat shape and, and to make her tough, things like that. But we can't we can fill to only so much until we have diminishing returns in the weight of the boat and things of that nature. So it's a it's a trade off that we have. But the roto molding process is 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 a short name for rotational molding. So what you're having is a, as a, for our case, it's a two-part mold, which is kind of like me cupping my hands together. Or if you think about a hollow Easter bunny, as I was told the story, the, the Germans in the early 1800s developed roto molding to make hollow Easter bunnies out of chocolate. So you have a two-part mold that's like two parts of your hand coming to, you know, one hand and another hand coming together, a clamshell, if you would. You have a clamshell coming together. You hold it up in space and you turn it while you're tipping it, rotate it to spread the resins out while you're heating it. And then the resins, in our case, are polyethylene versus chocolate. Our polyethylene sticks to the sidewalls as it's rotating and heating, and then we cool it. It's, it's easy to heat them. The real trick and the magic is, is in cooling them. And, and what's cool about rotomolding, it's a young industry, in, in a sense, with plastics. Plastics are really young, polyethylene. And what's neat about it is, is you know, a, a guy that has a PhD and has, you know, years of, years of, uh, you know, technological background will always, you know, admit and defer if he's a good one, I find, to, to someone that's working the oven that has a smell for it. There's a lot of, there's a lot of touch and feel involved in rotomolding. And that's been a real neat part of it. 
you know, I, I think every one of our boats probably is a little bit different as our customers would, would, would say. Yeah. Yeah. Super, <laughs> super neat. And, um, where did the name hog Island come from? You know, that was, I was working in, uh, hunting camps in the late, late eighties, early nineties in Jackson and the Teton and Grove wilderness. And when I was telling some of the folks I worked with, there was one particular guy who I'd call him a mentor as far as, you know, people that sent me off in a different direction. He was a cowboy named Bob Disney. And, uh, uh, when I tell him I was, I was working out of Jackson and things, they look at me disgusted. You know, that's where you buy a $2 coffee. And, uh, but if I told them it was Hog Island, they had no idea. And then Hog Island was about eight miles south of Jackson. Some of my friends fell that made my chaps. Some of my friends I fished with were, uh, grew up on Hog Island and always liked the name. It's up against Munger Mountain right on the Snake River. But there's Hog Islands everywhere. I'm in my shop now. There's a Hog Island. Somebody sent me a picture from from Michigan and Washington State has Hog Island oysters and things. They're everywhere, I think. Yeah, that was <laughs> where I Googled it, which and where I knew where you had lived. I was like, well, that doesn't quite sound right. So I wanted to ask that question. You know, so um, so you find this kind of new potential application for roto molding. You know, what was the potential that you saw for it and kind of that boating problem you were trying to solve uh, with this kind of new approach to boat making? You know, our the kayak I drove out with in 1982, I loved. It was an Old Town Presidente that had a split tennis ball in the front that was duct taped as my bumper. And uh, all the boats at that point were, were fiberglass for kayaking in, in rivers. There, there was actually, in the mid-70s, a uh, company, Holoform, made some roto-molded plastic kayaks i had never seen one yet maybe i've seen one and but i don't maybe but then perception uh came out with the mirage i think was their first model i bought a mirage in like 1984 i think and when i when i dropped my plastic or when i dropped my fiberglass kayak and and got the mirage i never thought about fiberglass ever again <laughs> and i was uh, uh doing a lot of guiding whether it's whitewater or fishing at a rubber boat and I never thought about fiberglass uh, in a rubber boat. When I got my first drift boat in like 87 or 88, it was a Yellowstone Drifter. A uh, beautiful little boat, had wood on the gunnel. It was a 14-foot boat, and it was glass. When I hit my first rock, I thought I was, you know, I'd done something really bad. And uh, uh, the fiberglass in the river just, you know, always gave, had a different effect and still does to me. And so I thought, I thought that, you know, plastic would, solve a lot of problems as far as durability and things of that nature in the in the river got it and you know are there any kind of trade-offs between uh, i guess plastic and then aluminum or fiberglass boats there are you know the the boat our drift boat we've been making now for 18 years and it's a um it's a heavy boat you know uh, compared to other 14 15 16 foot boats it weighs 430 pounds i think a lot of boats can come in around that are functional around 350. Um, uh, but, but, you know, I think they're more susceptible to rocks. I think our boat will, will last longer where our boat, um, it's, it's disadvantage would be definitely its weight, you know, that where it is, what you have to do with it on the, on the size of it. Yeah. Got it. And, you know, we've talked a couple times before this interview, can you kind of walk folks through your production process? Cause it's kind of cool. Cause, your ovens are half a country away and then you're putting the boats together in Colorado. <laughs> so, um, you know, when, uh, people look on like big Frank's website and see a boat, why don't you give them a little bit of a feel for what it took to get that boat to big Frank's? That's right. So we were rotomolding 
uh, the, the drift boat and the skiff are the two uh, world's largest skin foam skin parts. We're in North America's largest oven. There's only a couple of ovens available for this for what we do uh, making these boats. And the, uh, we've been now for eight years out in California, just north of Fresno and North America's largest oven. We rotomold our holes there. Um, we were assembling there in California until uh, this summer with COVID. One of our main guys out there got COVID and one thing or another led us to uh, move the assembly back to steamboat. So uh, uh, right now, what, what happens when Big Frank receives boats is a boat's made in California, uh, roto-molded, just like a chocolate Easter bunny, and then it's shipped to us with our boat haulers. Uh, we assemble it here in steamboat, uh, turn it into a boat, and then we ship it to uh, Big Frank or Action Marine in Austin or Portside down in, down in Orlando. Where customers come here and pick them up. Yeah, super cool. Yeah, I've I've got you know not necessarily with Hog Island boats, but have several buddies that have done the run to the Rockies to pick up a drift boat before. Yeah, yeah. I get everyone that comes to town. It's fun. A, a night at the Rabbit Ears. Uh, a lot of times we get to go fishing if it's if it's the right time of year type thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, super cool. So, how many boats do you guys make a year? You know, around 50, 50 to fifty five. This year we might do a little bit more, but around there very cool and you mentioned having to kind of bring things back to colorado to put them together any other impacts of covid on kind of your production process you know it's been it's been touch and go the first couple of months i think we're a lot different than they are now it was really hard the first couple of months we were we were uh we were getting uh sputtering production if you would you know the folks in california were challenged for sure with the shutdowns and and whatnot and um but now, you know, I think it's just a little bit more open. There's still some weirdness. You know, our, we've had a driving team. You know, everybody knows someone that has COVID now. And we've had these uh, uh, this family uh, that hauls for the Coast Guard and the Navy boats. And then they've, they've been able to backhaul for us, they call it, from California back east. And it's worked out great. And uh, we've got a good relationship with them. It's three brothers. And one of the brothers had COVID about a month ago. So uh, there's still some wrinkles. You know, we're we're we think we're going to ship one week and it might be pushed back two weeks with, with different things. And then the hurricane, we had the hurricane down Louisiana that messed, messed up our shipping there for a bit with trying to get boats from, they had to haul boats out of Louisiana to the coast guard and then pick up our boats. But there's always something. (laughs) Keeps life interesting. And so, you you know, for folks that aren't super familiar with, uh, with hog Island, you make a 16 foot drift boat and a 16 foot skiff. And I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about each boat. Yeah, the, the drift boat, like I was saying earlier, um, it's a heavier boat to be, be fair in the marketplace. Now it's an 18 year old, uh, design that I designed, uh, uh, thinking about the snake river. And, uh, it's a boat that's really good in class two, class three water, uh, fishing, as a, as a fishing platform and as a multi-day boat. And it's a good boat to be able to go to a lot of different rivers, if you would. It's a, it's a true 16 foot boat down the center line with a 54 inch bottom and an 81 inch beam. And my, my trick was leaving it wider going back to the transom and it created more footprint on the bottom of the boat and it created more deck space in the top because a lot of times in the, in the back seat of the boat of a skiff or a drift boat, that's like the penalty box, you call it, where the guy that didn't buy the trip is sitting or the brother-in-law or the person that's maybe not very fishy, you know? Yeah, the one with the spinning ride. Yeah, exactly. So, so our rear 
rear we think is you know a pretty fair seat, uh, nice big deck, and that that created a bigger footprint for us. It's a it's a stable boat, but like when I have guys, if you were calling me from Casper tonight, it wouldn't be a boat that you'd want on the North Platte for 150 days guiding up at the uh, Gray Reef where it blows like crazy, or or for that matter on the Madison. We only have a couple of boats on the Madison. Our drift boat, probably only a couple in that valley. A couple of our skiffs for sure, but a couple of drift boats in the valley. And those guys will t- be able to take their boat anywhere. They can multi-day on the Smith with it. And they can definitely bang down the Madison all day long. But in the wind, it can be a challenge. I like. I think our customers are happiest when they can go, you know, downhill with our boat and and uh, and not worry about it, you know. And then the skiff is, is a boat. I grew up with a couple of them, and and my last one. I had a flat bottom John boat for a bit and then a, a boat that had a tiny little V in the front and had a lot of that shape where it's tucked in at the transom. I, I was able to tuck the transom in a little bit. And when, when we were modeling it, I, I built both the mold first or built both the boat shapes in wood first before the mold and modeling it before I built it in wood. We could see that making versus the drift boat, making it wider behind the rower seat to give it more footprint and more speed where it stalls out you know the the skiff made it wider going forward and gave it more displacement up on the front deck uh, and then with a greater beam going forward and the and the boat bottom pinching up into a v it, it created a ton of sidewall and it looks a lot like a boat it's a hybrid of a boat uh, of two boats i grew up with a flat bottom and, a, and one that had a shallow v and the shallow v to be fair is just a uh, a little chop cutter uh, you know, the two thirds of our boat, of our skiff is a flat bottom boat with raised ribs for displacement, and and wanted a boat that would float stupid skinny. And it with the boat that skiff, the skiff weighs like 480 pounds, and that has a 400 pound inch displacement. So it's wild to see a picture with you know a guy that has a a motor on the uh, back that might weigh 100 and something pounds, and and he's on the front, and the things you know barely drawing three inches. You know, it's it's um. It floods really skinny. Yeah. <laughs> Super interesting. And I thought one of the coolest things too is to to hear that like you literally, I guess, sell these repair kits where you can literally iron more plastic onto the boats to fix them. Yeah, we, we give them away for sure. I, I, I mailed out several today. Uh, they're really easy. It's, it's, you know, the plastic welding is really just melting plastic. I've I, I had a little experience with it in the ski shops for sure. We do base welds using a plastic welder in, in P-Tech. So, if you if you know it all with, with uh, familiar with P-Tex it, or melting straws or army bent together when you were younger, you, you know just melt two straws and stick them together, and that's pretty much the same theory. What what we're using is a, a linear polyethylene resin, and linear refers to the molecular structure where the where the plastic when when new plastic and old plastic are introduced, their their molecules line line up and join and make a chemical bond. So it's been uh, really neat. That's been our saving grace. So when guys, you know, hit a rock and, and crack the drift boat in the early days, which which they do, or, you know, it falls off a trailer or anything happens to it of that nature, uh, scratches and things, you can literally just iron plastic back into plastic using a soldering kit that you buy at the hardware store that costs about $25. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's pretty cool, though. I mean, you know, uh, my, my understanding is you, you can't sink your boats and i've seen youtube videos of you dropping them off of cranes so, i mean it seems like they're pretty bulletproof they are they are we shoot them with shotguns the shotgun won't penetrate it if you're like 30 feet away but i would shot them with 45s and, and maybe some nine millimeters but the rifle rounds and pistol rounds go right through them pretty quick but the uh 
shotgun a hold up in it. And it takes a ton of abuse. When we, one of the first videos we saw, uh, a friend made up in Montana showed a panel of our boat being shot with a 12 gauge at like, you know, 10 feet and the panel looked like the Terminator it folded on itself and then snapped back. And that, and that's what the industry or what the plastics folks, the technicians call resistance to failure. And this is a neat point. I forgot that, that like fiberglass and aluminum are very tensile strength. They have a lot of uh, stiffness versus plastic, which is very, you know, uh, you can almost push your thumb into it at times, you know, it feels like, or definitely when you're walking on our decks, you can feel them, you know, uh, flex. And that's, that, that, that's a characteristic of it, resistance to failure on impact, you know, versus cracking or things of that nature. Yeah. And really interesting. And you mentioned that there was kind of a preference, uh, as people that prefer your drift boat are looking kind of for not windy and kind of a downhill float. Can you, you know, maybe get a little bit more specific and kind of talk about, you know, who each of those boats are made for and kind of where they do incredibly well compared to their competitors? Right. You know, the, the, our best, our, our, uh, I think our customers that are happiest with the drift boats live on rivers that they're hitting rocks in and know they're going to hit a lot of rocks in. Uh, and they've had their boat longer than, than folks that have fiberglass or aluminum boats are able to repair them real well. Um, uh, my favorite folks that I think of recently, some of my favorite folks for sure, is a, a husband-wife couple that went from Pondale to Mexico two falls ago on the Green and the Colorado Rivers. And they were able to uh, modify our, our drift boat we'll call it a dory shell at this point they're able to modify our dory shell with aluminum boxes and live on it for five months floating the length of the green and colorado rivers and uh uh that lit me up just the adventure of that trip all the different water they saw flat water big water grand canyon all the canyons and whatnot but for guys that are fishing float fishing uh there's a number of them on the whole the wataga and the uh uh What's that one over there? The Hiawassee. That's a rocky river. There's a number of them in that, that area, Middle Tennessee, uh, the Smoky Mountain area. I think are still living and, and bouncing. And, and uh, folks, like you say, are able to you know weld it shut, plastic weld, keep them going year after year. And that that makes me feel good. You know that that they can, I think they'll live forever. You know if you're patient. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And you know there's some pretty well known anglers who fish your boats. I was wondering if you could share with our listeners who some of them are and why they picked a hog Island over another boat. You know, I think the, the stiff things, uh, been pretty neat to get in those worlds. The, the fellow I mentioned earlier, Alvin, the down in Austin, Texas, uh, he's been a, he's been a, in our boat for a number of years now. And, uh, I think for him, he explained it well yesterday that, that it's, it, it's heavier than light, light gauge aluminum, but it's lighter than heavy gauge aluminum. And, and it rose well, you know, and that's where, that's where guys in our skiff, if, if it's Alvin and Austin and the guys that he guides with his, his wife, Lene and, and, uh, Greg Willander and, and folks like that, that are, that are in his world, Blaine Burris. Uh, and then if you, you move east, there's a, there's a crew in Atlanta, uh, Andy Bowen and Garner Reed out of Cahutta and they've been using our boat well in the Etowah and the, and the Chattahoochee. Um, uh, that's been a, a neat way for them. They can jet it and row it well. And I, I think that's what I'm able to, to convey to people, whether they're in Alaska or, or Georgia, is that, you know, if you're going to want to row a boat in the river and, and have a jet motor on it, uh, and, and our size is all right with you, if you don't need a bigger boat, an 18-footer, or even a bigger boat than that, then if you like our size, then we're going to be a good boat for you. 
versus aluminum or other options. Got it. And then, of course, you know, I know you've kind of got the musky mafia in the mid-Atlantic, right? Yeah. Yeah, we're uh, building a, a boat for Blaine here in the in the fall for sure. He's uh, yeah, he's been out, uh, a real inspiration. I've never seen one of one of the most busiest people I've ever seen. I think. <laughs> yeah, no, I would one hundred percent agree with that. And so, if I if I remember correctly, you have three dealers kind of in the eastern part of the United States. Is that correct? We do. Um, Big Frank's Outdoors in Maryville, Tennessee, and he has a second location in Locust Grove, Georgia. Big Frank has uh, uh, been outstanding for Hog Island. He's got a, a ton of patience to to make sure that that our you know our mutual customers uh, uh, get what they want. You know, it's been a you know it's been a, a blessing and and working with with Frank for sure, and and uh, as well as, as Action Marine down in Austin, Texas. Uh, they're a Tahatsu dealer, and we really like the Tahatsu jets on our boat. Uh, they've been really well. And then uh, we got a new dealer down in the Orlando area in Winter Park, Florida, named Portside Marine. And they that, that'll be a neat boat. That's a good market for us. We've got a number of guys in the Central Florida region that like our boat in the freshwater and saltwater. You know, it's a good hybrid boat for those guys if they, you know, like to uh, fish uh, fresh and salt and don't have to run very far. That's been a good good uh, solution for a lot of guys down there versus aluminum. If they're looking at aluminum gun boat, they still want to run around the Indian River Lagoon or over on the west side, then they can they can take our boat with a pulling platform and kind of get it all done. Yeah, and I guess, you know, I'm not a boat guy, so obviously people can come to where you assemble them and pick them up if they're not close to a dealer. Do you ship boats as well? We do. It can get complicated then, but we do. Yeah, it, it's, it's just money, right, John? <laughs> it is. It is. There's a great service online with this internet world. We use uh, UShip a lot of times, and we have a, a number of uh, drivers that are retired that if it's the right location, they, they love to do the trip. Yeah, very cool. And, you know, we didn't even mention this, but, you know, uh, another, in addition to the durability of your boats, you know, compared to kind of other boats in their class, they're very reasonably priced. Can you kind of let our listeners kind of know kind of the difference and kind of what it looks like? Yeah, the, for the uh, skiff and the drift boat, both the whole, uh, the skiff ready for a motor uh, lands back east for sixty-seven fifty. So after that, you'll you'll you know if you want a pulling platform or oar locks or blade locks or things of that nature to row it or a trolling motor mount, front bow sleeve, front decks, those are add-ons after the uh, sixty-seven fifty landed back east, and then uh, our drift boat's going to land like that too, uh, back east for sixty-seven fifty after after uh and that'll be ready for accessories as well that's just a boat kind of offering them that way this year uh so guys can you know if they want the oar logs you know everything we do on the drift boat casting braces things of that nature all all add-ons but that gives them a nice uh look at it kind of like if, if you were looking you know other other boat models and things add on from there yeah and so just kind of rough idea by the time you buy a trailer uh and you kind of accessorize it what are people kind of looking at yeah, with the with the skiff, you know, your motor's going to cost as much as the boat, and probably a little bit more if you go the jet route. Uh, but uh, the skiff, you know, with with motor and, and uh, a couple of accessories in the trailer, uh, you're going to be looking anywhere between twelve to fifteen to sixteen, uh, up to seventeen. We, we there's some center console options with our skiff, with the drift boat, uh, with everything in all the oars and trailers and everything. You should be, you know, uh, south of nine. 
Yeah, very cool. And, you know, uh, obviously it's been beyond a weird year, but is there anything on the horizon for Hog Island you want to share with our listeners? You know, we're uh, taking it a day at a time, you know. <laughs> well, I, I won't. I won't hold you to uh, the new 2021 models then. Yeah, uh, no. I mean, uh, uh, yeah. I think we'll stay tuned for the zombie apocalypse. <laughs> Fair enough. Well, well, the good news is shotgun rounds don't go through the boat, so you're safe. <laughs> you'll know where you'll find me. Yeah. So, um, you know, obviously, you know, fly fishing shows in early 2021. You know, I think everyone's hopeful, but you know. We know that it's not 100% certainty that they're going to happen. Are you guys planning to be on the show circuits, or are there going to be places that folks can go in January, February, and March? I can't speak to our dealers. We were going to, The last thing we were going to do was the end of March, a show in Orlando with our Winter Park uh, dealer, Portside Marine, and that, of course, got canceled uh, like you know a week before, uh, March 20th or something. They might have canceled it, but uh, our dealers might. I don't, I don't know. I Me mean, personally, I'm hoping, I'm dreaming of, making some cross country tours for some, for some, uh, FaceTime, you know, they, they call it, you know, with some folks and get out and about, but the shows, I don't know. I don't have a good feel for it right now. Yeah. Cause I guess the way I, the way I met you is big Frank had his boats down in Atlanta at the fly fishing right. show and you were there in the booth, right? Yes. Yeah, man, I've been enjoying going to Atlanta a couple of days earlier or something and go fishing. It's been, been a lot of fun. Yeah. The, hit the stripers um so you know before i let you hop you know what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you and kind of keep up with everything hog island you know i'm gonna say the internet you know probably uh uh com. we try to keep our instagram thing going a little bit uh that's a good place to find us as well or for things that other folks are posting of cool well i'll uh, i'll drop all that stuff in the show notes all right. Thank you very much. Oh, it's all good. Well, listen, John, I really appreciate you taking some time to chat with me this evening. My pleasure. Thank you. Absolutely. Take care. Well, folks, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we enjoyed bringing it to you. Again, if you like the podcast, please tell a friend and please subscribe and leave us a review in the podcatcher of your choice. Tight lines, everybody. Mm-hmm.